The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome to Dugout Study Hall, a remedial course in baseball stats and proud member of the Pitcherless Podcast Network. I'm your host and expert layman Matt Goodwin, and I am joined, as always, by your fake baseball economist, Alexander Chase. On this episode, we'll throw our two cents into the discussion about Josh Donaldson and Tim Anderson, dig a little bit into pitcher babbup and what it means or doesn't, and look at some peculiar pitching performances thus far from some high investment arms. But before we get to all of that, Alexander, how you doing? Uh pretty well uh it was like disgusting in dc this weekend like mm-hmm. mid 90s which again should be illegal everywhere all of the time but yeah. uh <laughs> yeah so uh but then like it that has left and i'm I'm, ha- I'm back to being happy um obviously the weather as we all know is the only thing that determines how i feel about anything at any given time <laughs> That's so why we have to talk about it right at the top of all these it is, episodes. It absolutely yeah is. it was it was very hot here in uh, New England and Connecticut over the weekend as well. It's definitely back to being a little cool. Um, I prefer this over the the mid nineties, but there I, there are people who would take the the nineties and the sunny days over over this. So you know, to each their own, I suppose. But I think uh, in terms of comfort level, I'd much rather have it be a little cooler. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, not that Mother Nature listens to me. Um, I would like to jump in here with what may turn out to be a little bit of a serious topic. And I, a lot of people have weighed in and, and it's sometimes it's just better to let people kind of jump into conversations and say their silly dumb things and, and let it unfold as it's going to unfold without really weighing in. But I really do think this is something that um, it, it's, it's a big enough deal that I, I really think it's important that we discuss it. And that's the Josh Donaldson, Tim Anderson situation. So um, normally I, I pose this and then I give you a chance to say your piece. Uh, I'm going to switch that a little bit. I'm going to say my piece and then I'm going to let you say what, what you'd like to say. And admittedly, uh, I am a, a middle-aged white male. Uh, and so this is a conversation that it, my voice is not necessarily the one that needs to be heard, but I still, I feel like there's there's some elements of this conversation that have not been expressed and whether you think that what Josh Donaldson was saying was racist or was not racist here's here's what i'm thinking about all of this number 1 if you or i alexander were to uh pull up behind a car in a gas station and then uh proceed to go up to the driver of that car and give them a hard time about their bumper sticker um and and tease them somebody we don't know and have never met before it would be reasonable to expect that they would be upset by that. Um, this is not the kind of behavior that in normal society people engage in. You want to talk about busting chops. That's something you do with people you know. That's something you do with buddies. And sometimes it's, it still goes too far, even with people you know and care about. And so the idea that Josh Donaldson was not being a jerk by doing what he was doing is just silly. He absolutely, at the very least, was being a jerk. And Josh Donaldson has kind of established himself as somebody who's totally fine with being a jerk. And if you're somebody who kind of likes people who are jerky from time to time, then that's that's your call. But that's not something that I really uh, dig very much. I, I don't understand why people feel the need to needle other people. Uh, you want to call it trash talk, whatever. In real life, you trash talk a stranger 
and things are going to happen, right? Like, it's just a silly thing. Why, why would you want to be that guy? Number one. Number two, there's been a lot of arguments about whether what he said was racist or not, and people jumping to Donaldson's defense on the, on that front. And my thinking is, unless you're a hundred percent sure, one hundred percent sure that race had nothing to do with what he said, why are you defending it? There's no way to know for sure. On the surface, it certainly seems like it has something to do with race. At the very least, we don't know if the beef that they've had going back a long time is race-based. Uh, so why are we jumping to any kind of defense of what Donaldson did when, number one, it's poor form, number two, it's jerky behavior, and number three, there's a high likelihood that there's a racial component to this. I just don't understand why people feel the need to rush to Josh Donaldson's defense uh, in this situation. Uh, and it's, it's, it's just frustrating for me to see that so many people are so excited and energized by an opportunity to defend somebody who, again, at the very least was being a jerk. So that, I, that's kind of where, where I'm coming from on this. I don't know if, if you have a, a kind of a different or maybe a softer, uh, impression. This is something that actually, it bothers me because I just don't like, it's very much bullying behavior, no matter what. Um, Donaldson is showing himself again to be a little bit of a bully. And I just don't like bully behavior whatsoever, especially potentially racist bully behavior. It's just, there's no place for it at all. I think I want to like kind of flip a perspective bit that you raised at the very beginning. And it's like, the, you know, like we're white dudes. Do our voices need to be heard on this? And I think one of the things that we can actually add is like, we know people like this. If you grow up, like, like I know that I grew up, um, kind of sort of middle of nowhere Texas and like you get acquainted with a lot of people who are really okay with being all sorts of different types of terrible when they have no pushback against them right so I think one of the things that's important here is like oh yeah I know that guy or a lot of different that guys out there right like uh, even if like you can play the mental gymnastics game to like try to absolve someone of specific blame. It's like you have to be like dodging all sorts of like trend based laser beams. Basically it's like, the, no, this one doesn't apply. And like, it's, it's not the same as that other thing. And let's see. I think the um, quote from, uh, Oh my God. I'm, uh, Liam Hendricks uh, yeah. had like a pretty like wind off on him sort of quote about like, past locker rooms don't like him for different reasons yeah right multiple it, places too far be it from us for uh to like praise garrett cole for being enemies with josh donaldson historically or anything like that but, like, yeah i mean like i think that you have to interpret these sorts of things uh like kind of like give uh I'm trying to remember i, I want to make sure i'm crediting the right person here but the idea here that I saw earlier today is like that a good way to, intend, uh, to judge this isn't like by trying to warp yourself into someone's mind or absolving yourself of having to make a moral judgment because you think you can't do that, but rather to like think of like intentionality. Uh, yeah. I and mean, that's kind of what you know, I'm getting at, right? If, yeah, if, if we'll never know if this was, if Josh Donaldson was intentionally trying to race bait Tim Anderson, right? I mean, it's, it certainly that's, that's seems a dumb question. That's kind of the to, point, right? Right. That's that to me. This is going to sound. Stay with me for a minute. It doesn't matter whether or not we finally ever get to the the end game where we find out. And Josh Donaldson says, "Yeah, okay, I was being racist," because he's not going to say that. the The fact remains that there is a chance that it was, and and the behavior itself is bad. So I, I just I it really. I struggle to understand why people are, are rushing to his defense, I guess, is, is yeah, really. I think you raised the right question me. there. It's kind of like, is what I, I like about like the, the, the framing here. It's like, why are people, not him, so excited to do this? And I, I think an easy sort of like my perspective question or answer to that is that people want to have breathing room for when they do the exact same thing. Um, mm, right? Maybe. If, if the convert, if you can point back to, well, we didn't punish him for doing that bad thing that's very comparable to what I did, then it allows you to kind of, like... Yeah, I guess. Have a I mean, defense it's just like, bad behavior begetting more bad behavior, right? Right. 
which is I, I the entire cycle and uh, and what makes all of this so problematic to begin with. I, I think maybe some of y'all might have picked this up about my opinions towards like institutions like Major League Baseball doing bad things over and over, uh, you know, with regard to baseballs themselves or just making bad faith decisions or you talk about labor, et cetera, et cetera. I don't typically take a, a really rosy output or, or like outlook on like people's intentions and people's actions. I tend to assume the worst uh, because that's kind of the evidence we have is that most times people kind of suck. Um, and you have to, you know, believe someone when they show you who they are, et cetera, et cetera. So I think mm. you raise a good question. I think the answer is going to be disappointing that most people who are jumping to his defense, you know, like John Heyman comes to mind, right? As a sort of people mm-hmm. who's like trying every single thing he can on his Twitter feed this morning to kind of be in that place. It's like, okay, like, are we surprised though? So I think it's this just is a great kind of like check on your so priors. Hard. Like, yeah. I don't know. Digging, digging as much as they're digging and working so hard to defend something. What if you're wrong? What if it was 100% a racist, jerky comment designed to to be awful? Like it just, and there's a chance that's true. There's a good chance that's true. So why why do we need to work so hard to defend that? I, I just it's 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 hard. It's hard to see. It's hard. It's frustrating. And this is from my perspective where. I don't suffer the consequences of this type of behavior in my life, but the fact that other people do and continue to is, is just wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, I, I think we're probably not going to learn a whole lot from this. Uh, just kind of like right, a dumb thing. Right. You know, the people who kind of already know how to handle and think about this are probably going to continue to handle and think about this appropriately. And other people aren't. Um, I, I think that's kind of like, I think this is a good sort of thing. Like we can talk a whole lot about how to get better at analyzing pitchers, and we'll do that and stuff. Later. Right. Um, I think most people are pretty unwilling to uh, change their minds and how they analyze people. But yeah, uh, Mike Gianella is the person who I want to kind of like steal this outlook on. It's like a we punish reckless drivers all the time. Uh, you, we don't have to think that someone intentionally got in a car rap, car crash, but like if you're doing things that are like outside the bounds of like trying to be a good person on the road you are held at fault for the outcomes of your actions i think it's a pretty reasonable situation in this case to like if you're being a normal person to see what he did it was like pretty reckless in terms of like regarding how other people would react and like or feel yeah exactly so like in that case like we don't owe anyone the benefit of the doubt uh we don't owe drivers the benefit of the doubt when they're swerving between lanes uh, that that car crash was truly accidental, and we don't owe Josh Donaldson anything here. So, um, that sort of pessimism um, isn't something I, I like to let pervade everywhere, but I think it's it's useful and it's kind of important to kind of adapt that, and then be happy when you're proving wrong once in a while. I guess. Well, I I think Tim Anderson deserves a lot of kudos for being able to just kind of. Um go on uh, with with playing the next game going out there hitting that bomb that was that was a nice oh, moment yeah, for him absolutely um and uh unfortunately he shouldn't have to deal with that sort of a thing but i i think that he definitely deserves recognition for for dealing with it with grace and and the organization too i mean they they could have come i think they said what needed to be said i think i don't think they were pulling punches um but I think that they did it in a professional way uh, while also sticking up for their guy. So um, I don't know. I don't know what else we, you and I are, are going to be able to say to your point. We're certainly not solving this problem, the two of us, uh, but it, it also felt like something that um, it's there. And if we don't talk about it, then it just stays there and hangs there. And I know that there are a lot of other people weighing in. Like I said, we generally don't necessarily uh, have to feel like we go into the fray on these things. But I, I thought in this particular case, it was, it was uh, worth doing. So we can move on now to baseball uh, metric matters. The thing that we, we usually talk about and uh, we will do our number of the week. And I'm not going to make you play any guessing games this time. Um, I mean, I can, if you want, I have the <laughs> list, but um, I think, uh, I think I probably should give you a break from, from putting you on the spot like that. That's fine. Um, so I'm going to start with, with 353, which is Kevin Gossman's BABIP against, um, which I think is wow. 
fascinating for a few reasons, and and we'll get into that. Really, what I kind of want to talk about here until uh, from from now until we get to kind of the you know the the main idea of our, our episode, which is just some some peculiar pitching performances and what's really going on and what we might be able to expect moving forward is. When we look at people who have a high BABIP at this stage of the year or people who have low BABIP, uh, from a pitcher's point of view, the BABIP against, mm-hmm. is there meaning to be gleaned from that? So, for example, if Kevin Gossman has been the w- as good as he's been and has a 353 BABIP against, does that mean that he's likely to be even better moving forward? What are, what are some things that we can kind of take away? And then I want to talk specifically about the top five um, the pitchers who have the top five highest BABIP against and the top five lowest BABIP against to see if we can maybe use some of those players as kind of the, uh, the case study for what, what whatever points we're going to make here. So tell me, tell me, t- let's talk a little bit about Gossman specifically and, and tell me what that 353 BABIP says to you. So um, BABIP is a, a weird and kind of dumb number sometimes, uh, depending on how you want to interpret it, right? Just like some people interpret a yellow light the wrong way (laughs) as a speed up signal. You know, it's like you can get the wrong information from a perfectly decent signal all the time. Um, The things I'm often like a little bit wary of when it comes to BABIP are like, you know, is it proof that your defense has been bad? Is it coming from the fact that you're playing in a gigantic ballpark? Is it coming from the fact that people just hit the hell out of the ball when you throw it? (laughs) Yeah. Those are right, some right. normal There's reasons. a lot of variables that could contribute to right. it, right? A thing that also comes to mind for me, though, is that Babbitt only includes balls in play, which means it doesn't include home runs, which means you can get these odd situations where uh, someone can give up like a ton of home runs and have a really low Babbitt or pit a right. lot of home runs and have a really low Babbitt because it's like the flyouts help hurt you. The ones that go over the fence don't hurt you. Uh, notably, Gosford has not been giving up any home runs. Uh so, like, I would expect some, like, regression on that to a degree. Um, I think he might give up some home runs this year. Like, not Probably. a million, <laughs> but, like, he's going to give up a couple. He's not going to give up zero. I think that's right. pretty safe to say. Right, right, right. Um, and I, I should also note, like, he hasn't been walking anyone. He's been striking out a good number of people. So that means there's probably a lot of, like, you know, situations where, pe- like, people are behind in the count and are just trying to get their bat to the ball and are, like, this you know like got their singles swing on i can imagine his his babbit being pretty like not that big of a deal no actually i pulled in advance of today's we're gonna look at a bunch of numbers for a bunch of dudes episode i already had like the hard contact rate for the whole league and he's like bang average uh now if you're not walking anyone like that means that very few batters are like putting together like a good pa against you yeah so he's got um a 1.5 percent walk rate and like a 27% hard contact rate. So that means like 28.5 plus any hit by pitches. Is he any hit by pitches? Oh, I got, I got it now. Um, has he hit anyone this year? Uh, uh, Savant is letting me down and not telling me this fast <laughs> enough. That's okay. Um, we get, we get the concept yeah. of it, yeah, right? right? I guess, I guess the question then is, would you expect that this BABIP would regress in a way that benefits Gossman moving forward. Now that may be with a trade-off too, right? The Babbitt might regress, but the home runs will go up. Uh, he's been very good. <laughs> that's that's not the issue, but is there actually room for him to get a little bit more lucky and be even better? I think sort of. Like I think some home runs are gonna leave the park, which is going to hurt him more right. than like the singles that are following are going to help him. Like if I'm looking right now for the things I'm usually looking for, his line drive rate's not crazy. His sweet spot rate's not crazy. People aren't hitting the ball hard a whole lot against him, et cetera, et cetera. It does seem like luck, right? Um, I would probably err on the side of he's probably going to be really good. And even if some people do get on base against him, like if his bad dip doesn't get better, um, because like the base runners are going to be so infrequent, you know, you can kind of like think of OBP as like the more it goes up, the better it is for your team slash the worse it is for a pitcher. So it's like, as your whip goes up or however you want to think about it, like those effects compound because he's not walking people. You know, if people are getting some cheap singles and occasionally doubles against him, it's not going to hurt him as often, as long as he can keep up this incredible command, which is really crazy, actually. All told, yeah. well, like, let's, let's take this to the extreme, right? Because that's something we haven't done in a while to kind of prove the point. If Kevin Gossman 
every time he goes out, strikes out the first two batters, third batter dribbles a single up the middle, third batter strikes out, he's going to have a 1,000 BABIP against, <laughs> right? Yes. But he's dominating correct. the other team. So uh, I, again, that's that's not going to happen, but it does kind of prove the concept of why these numbers can maybe sometimes be a little bit misleading. You really have to dig into which variable is impacting that and affecting that. But it does seem like that is that BABIP is definitely due for some regression. But it, the trade-off may be that he's also going to get some more home runs. So you're you're not selling Kevin Gossman because more home runs are coming. Uh, you're not going to get a deal on him uh, because right now his BABIP against is really high. <laughs> so it's it's really just a, an opportunity to talk about the impact of uh, impact of BABIP on on pitchers and, and what it might mean. So let's. Let's look at these top five lists that I have. Um, and we don't have to spend a ton of time on this because I think we've we've kind of made the point that was designed to be made, but we haven't talked about those pitchers with low Babbitt uh, numbers who may wind up, who have been very lucky potentially and may wind up giving up more, uh, more base runners. So the top five um, who have a high Babbitt, I'm trying to say this the right way, and I keep sort of stumbling over my words. I want to make sure this is clear. The, the top five uh, BABIP against <laughs> uh, for pitchers. The highest. Herman Marquez, right, uh, has a 360 BABIP against. Kyle Freeland, 357 BABIP against. There's Kevin Gossman at three, so third in the league, uh, 353. Patrick Corbin, 345. And then Zach Wheeler is number five at 339. Uh, some of that could be early starts uh, too. So we've talked a little bit about the concept there. I wanted to bring up those names because I, I, I think you're you're looking at Kevin Gossman and Patrick Corbin being right next to each other in a list. That should really signal to you that there are more than what there's more than one way to get to this result, right? Patrick Corbin right. is getting to a high Babbitt because he's not been good. Kevin Gosman is getting to a high Babbitt in a very different way. So it's not necessarily right. on its own a number that that is meaningful unless you have that context. Right, um, right, right. Now the pitchers with the lowest Babbitt against, which maybe this means more. Uh, I don't know. You tell me. Um, but I'm going to list off the the pitchers and I'm going to give you the numbers and then I'm going to let you kind of talk about what you think this means or doesn't mean with with these particular uh, arms. And and then again, in concept, how do we how do we work with this number that, it's, that they've given up a low BABIP thus far? Um, how do we make sense of that? So the the qualifying pitcher with the lowest BABIP against is Michael Kopech at 167. Then Justin Verlander at 195. Tristan McKenzie at 211, Brad Keller 229, and then Joe Ryan 234. Now, I do want to note the next two because I think this is really, really important. The next two are Corbin Burns at 235 and Alex Manoa at 239. So we do start to get into the area where you are going to probably have a lower BABIP if you're really good at inducing soft contact. Right. If, if that right. if that's something you are good at, your BABIP should be on the lower side. Um, if we're looking at how Tristan McKenzie is getting there in contrast, that's probably a different story. So uh, I don't want to steal your thunder here, Alexander, but go ahead and talk to me a little bit about this side of that coin. Um, I, I want to note that I have no respect whatsoever for anyone named Alec, but it is Alec Manoa. It's a fake name. It's a bad name. Uh, did I say Alex? You did. Uh, I did. I'm sorry, Alex. For him, Um, that's just because I have Alexander on the brain. Uh, Yes, I apologize, Mr. Manoa. And if I ever meet you, I will. uh, I don't know. I'll give you a high five. Um. Yeah. I mean, I'm probably afraid of him for multiple reasons. He went to the University of West Virginia, so I have to be scared of anyone who does that. Um, Whatever. That's obviously not the point here. Yeah. You you bring up a couple obvious like some people are going to have better Babbitt against numbers uh, in off season. More than a few people brought up, like um, Freddie Peralta's dab up against last year. You're like, oh, he can't keep this up. Like, nobody can hit the ball hard off of him. No one can square up mm-hmm. stuff. Makes sense. If you're looking at the top of like the hard contact rate leaderboards, which is exactly why I like this stat early in the season, is it tells people, tells me, like, is someone getting hit hard or is someone getting hit exactly squared up more often than they would? So, like, um, Alec Manoa's got a hard contact rate of 21%. That's, by the way, roughly what he had last year. Dude is really, really hard to square up. Um, 
And that has been a consistent trend early in his major league career. And the BABIP against there looks fully deserved. Um, there are some other names on this list that like I'm a little curious about. So like Burns has been at the top of these leaderboards. He's been bang average this year, though. Uh, so so far, batters have been doing a little bit better against him than they had been last year in terms of the contact. You know, he's like striking people out. He's still good. Um, but yeah, he you can maybe say he's been a little bit lucky. Now he has a good defense. I should know. Should also help him out. And some balls will leave the park in uh, Milwaukee a little bit faster than they will leave the park or different parks elsewhere. It, it does have some like, sure. short dimensions. So like you've got a confluence of different things that would help him to sustain a low babbit without just making him better better overall um they don't require great inputs for all these uh, a similar sort of thing can be said for verlander's park uh his defense has not been as great this year uh, the astros you know like had correa and bregman on the left side historically and like you know like he does have some really good defenders still on that team i i think um uh, kyle tucker has been like towards the top of like the outs above average leaderboard I don't have any faith whatsoever, though, that Justin Verlander's Babbitt is going to stay that low. Um, like, mm-hmm. it just isn't. <laughs> I believe his uh, left on base is abnormally high as well. Yeah. I will double been... check that. But there, there are definitely those... some signs that he's going. Yeah, he leads the league in left on base percentage at 95.7%. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think that uh, I think Verlander, like Verlander's 26% hard contact pretty much around average. Nothing to write home about. His walk rate has been like good, but not phenomenal. Five four point eight. Okay, that's pretty good. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pretend that isn't phenomenal. That's really good. Um, yeah, there's nothing about this profile that screams he's gonna be like super duper duper good. Like I would not have him in my top ten start like starting pitcher the rest of the season going forward. He's had a really low line drive rate, which doesn't stick. Career long, he's like around MLB average. I should also note. He's not a guy that has historically been great at that. Uh, Batters has just not hit the ball over Jose Altuve's head. Like, that's just been it. Um, and, like, do I think that sticks around? No, no. Do I think he'll be good? Yeah. Yeah, I think that the <laughs> argument here isn't, is he going to be good? It's, is he going to be this elite moving forward? Right, and there's right. some signs that say that he probably won't. Um, though I will say number two in left on base percentage is Burns who does that because mm-hmm. he's excellent. So we've had this conversation before with Robbie Ray's left on base percentage last year and, and how that was likely to regress. And, um, and also that like, I guess this is similar to Babbitt, but I think I actually said that then, um, that there are, there are guys who are going to have left on base percentage numbers that look abnormal, but it's because they're really, really good. So in our extreme case, Two strikeouts, guy gets on, third strikeout. That is also a stranded runner, right? So um, people, guys who are really good are, are generally probably going to have higher left on base uh, percentages. But there are also people who luck into those higher left on base percentages. And that's where you, you need to be able to look and, and use your gut and your instinct and maybe some other context and, and tools to decide. Is Justin Verlander that elite that his left on base percentage leads the league so that it will stay that way? Or has are, are there warning signs that he's been a little bit lucky and while he won't be bad, probably will not be this good. Um, so you got to what's more? What's the more likely outcome? So I, I think that like there probably aren't a ton of people who are like super duper overreacting but i have seen him in some like top five rest of season this from some people on twitter and stuff like that like, that's that's a little bit more just like i think he's gonna be really good because he has been like his strikeout rate is down uh compared to like you know peak verlander which like 26 percent fine um like that's totally fine i i just would note like we had some reasons to think that maybe he wouldn't be his Cy Young self, uh, both in terms of like coming back in the post sticky stuff enforcement era and getting Tommy John surgery. Have you ever heard of that? Um, those are <laughs> those are bad things. I mean, his fastball velo is basically the same, but like the shape of his pitches have been, I think, a little bit different. And I think you can probably say that some of that, you know, I'm not going to call it spider tack necessarily, but like remember. When well, that's I mean that is true. There's some. there's that element as well. Um, all right, we are going to continue this conversation um, talking about pitching performances that maybe are a little bit puzzling or peculiar. Um, but before we get to that, we are going to take a very small break. 
Hey, Alex Fast here, and thanks for listening to this podcast on the Pitcher List Podcast Network. If you're a fan, consider supporting all of us by getting a PL Plus subscription, where you're going to get an ad-free website and get access to our Discord, where you can talk to all of our podcast hosts and staff. Plus, you can hang out with our incredible Pitcher List community. It's basically a baseball sanctuary year-round for as low as $8 a month. You can sign up at PitcherList.com backslash plus, and you're going to get your first month free with promo code podcast also don't forget to check out everything else we do as well from youtube videos live streams newsletters off-season articles tiktoks breakdowns over 15 baseball podcasts on our network we can't stop talking about baseball even during the off-season so sign up for pl plus today at pitcherlist.com backslash plus and use promo code podcast to get your first month free all right thanks for listening let's get back to the show and we're back. So, Alexander, this is where the rubber is going to meet the road in this episode. Why have some of these top line pitchers, these guys we drafted early that we invested in, been not so good? Or maybe the flip side, they've been good, but their results stink. Or the flip side of the flip side, this is some sort of odd geometric shape that has more than than just the two, two sides. Um and that would be people who maybe have had good results, but their stuff has not been as as good. This that idea brings me to like the Reed Detmers no hitter, right? Where he he no hit a team that hit the ball hard off of him like eight times over a hundred miles an hour exit velocity, two strikeouts, but had the result. So uh, again, this isn't taking anything away from his accomplishment, but if we're looking at this from an analytical point of view and who these pitchers are and, and what we might expect moving forward, we have these pitchers who have done things that are maybe a little bit not what we expected. Um, let's let's talk about that. And uh, we have all sorts of different categories here. I'm going to let you pick where we start. Okay, yeah. This is, uh, I think, a, a good way to kind of like sum up like what was on my mind is that like there's a lot of different types of signals and like you can be borked in one direction or another and like kind of still works out to either be good or bad. And like, you know, if you have like one thing that says you're bad, like that probably doesn't mean you're bad. Also, like, let's say you have like a slightly elevated home run rate, and you're, like your, your FIP says you should be bad, but the results have been good and stuff like that. Um, I think we can usually separate um, those things. Uh, we need to say like flip side of the flip side. I should note how my brain broke for a second. Uh, uh, I don't know that you, if you've ever read the uh, the excellent internet essay, um, Critical Perspectives on Waluigi. Um, no, I have not. No, I didn't think so. Um, but yeah, that's what comes to mind. The TLDR there is, you know, um, you know, we have Mario, and then uh, we have Wario, who is him inverted to be bad. Yeah, right. We have right. Um, Luigi, who is Mario inverted to be like wimpy. Waluigi is then a reflection of a reflection. He is like a parody of a parody. So he like doesn't have his own personality. He's just a joke. Okay. Um, and that's what comes to mind. It's this, it's, it's this very dumb, like fake, fake, uh, academic, like, uh, like post from like 2013. And like every six months or so, I look it up and check really good. Cause it's pretty, <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, it's our job today to kind of like figure out where on this sort of like, um, Mario, Waluigi, uh, kind of spectrum that a lot of these pictures are falling. And, it has been a really fun early season for me to like not think about any of my teams while trying to figure these guys out. And it's been quite annoying in some cases to like be like, all right, when are you going to be good again? Yeah. Um. So I want to kind of start with um the guys who have not had good results, but have different sorts of signs that everything isn't like worth panicking about yet. Mm hmm. Um, there are a couple like really obvious names in this band, and they're not all the same though in terms of like what under the hood tells us they might be uh they might be okay. And I want to kind of talk about a couple of the different reasons why you might latch onto something that that says someone's going to be fine. Um, so a couple of names that kind of fall in this bin are guys like uh, Brandon Woodruff. He's got like a four seven five ERA or something like that. Mm. Uh, Brios is worse than that. Robbie Ray, who's also not been looking all that ace-like. 
they all kind of like have followed followed a few different paths to end up in this spot. I think Trevor Rogers also deserves to be here. He was in that guy that named on the felony list. Alex Cobb. There are a lot of different guys now. Alex Cobb doesn't scream ace material, but I think he deserves to be in this conversation regardless. Uh, so we're gonna kind of just like run through a handful of those. Do you? roster any of those guys that you're particularly worried about that you want me to start with well trevor rogers yeah definitely um <laughs> I, I think i brought him up to you in in uh was it discord was it i don't know if it was just a our, yeah, our yeah, yeah. Or, but uh he is definitely of particular concern to me personally but that doesn't I mean we don't have to start there right i, I think we should because uh it was really funny how you phrased it and you're like basically like hey tell me not to worry and i was like i'll do my best um <laughs> but like you can't you can't in, in all of these cases like it just it, uh pastes together a, a a yes no answer for all of these guys and right we're just gonna do some impossible stuff here and i want to kind of like separate out like the the different things into three categories here like you'll have your like era and I guess also whip, but mostly ERA, because I know how people's fantasy minds work. Um, as like the first like real indicator is like the have you got good results for the one category that people seem to think matters for pitching, which is like not fully true, but it's kind of true. Like if you're having a good season or a bad season, kind of hinges on that for a lot of people's minds. Um, well, that's because it whether it's a good stat or not, it's what what determines whether you win or lose, especially if you're in a head to head league. Yeah, I kind of agree. Um, and yeah, it's like the coin flip stat, right? It's the one that you really got to like hope like fixes itself. And you're like, cause like right, you can predict right. strikeouts, right? That's, that's, that's why we worry about this is cause it's the one thing we have to like look into the crystal ball for. Um, so yeah, there's like that like really shaky ERA number category. And a lot of these guys fit into that being bad. Secondarily, there are kind of like the outputs that aren't era that i tend to like and care about these are things like how many whiffs are you getting you know like what is your batted ball profile you can kind of like stretch that out a little bit farther and i do want to make sure i know like guys who have given up a good number of home runs maybe even striking people out less as a result of their fewer whiffs if you have more walks these are all results of different sorts no matter how quickly or impossibly long term they stabilize the last bin i want to kind of like separate out is kind of like the hypothetical but not hypothetical like has their stuff been good yeah. uh, which is you know if you're like a stuffist and i'm not sure if i am i don't think i am uh but i am always interested in it you know it's kind of like the opposite of my approach and so i have to like pay attention to it just these are things like stuff plus pitching putts or i'm going to for kind of like the sake of today because it's publicly available if you don't have an athletic subscription <laughs> it's really easy to use reference kind of uh cameron gross pitching bot data but yep a lot of that stuff tends to agree with each other enough that I can kind of use one as a stand and for some others and feel okay about it. So basically it's like, have your, has your ERA been good? Have your other outputs been good? Has your stuff been good? And all these guys who fit into the bad ERA mostly have had pretty good stuff. I, I should note. Um, there are some guys who have been just bad. They're not that interesting to talk about. Uh, Bieber has been just bad. That's kind yeah. of really all I got to say. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it, I, I'd be worried there. And I kind of don't believe it at that. Um, but yeah. Um, so a lot of these guys have had really good and especially location numbers. Uh, so the idea there is they're throwing the ball into places of the zone um, or outside the zone. This should be hard to hit. Um, and if we start with Trevor Rogers, the story has been that his stuff looks pretty much fine. I, I, I think uh, I'm going to pull him back up. I have him up earlier. So I'm going to use exact numbers. Um, but yeah, his like, uh, so what, what you can do is really nice. Uh, if you go get his, yeah, he's like 55 stuff, 60 command, 60 overall. Uh, his expected run value change per like other better space is like negative 0.48, which is good. I just wanted to say that's good. Um, if you look at him and like over like last year, it's basically the same. Now he had some like wonky, was he good versus like, uh, you know, like over the course of the season. One of the nice things I love about like the, the camera groves thing is like you can actually, um, I pick a previous year, pull out a chart of like what his stuff rating was for a particular game. And so I like to pull out 2011 and I click the button to include 2012, 2021 and include 2022. So you can yeah, see like he's 2011. Been, it's it's oh, a long time ago. He, he was in elementary <laughs> school or something like that. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not quite true, but feels like it is. So yeah, he's been like his normal, like 65 grade on average, maybe a little inconsistent, but not awful self. He had like one bad day. I think he, like his most recent outing, he had like what I'm gonna call like four. He's had a couple grade. of not great outings. Yeah, like, but like 
he's his like all over the course of the season, like pretty much all of his single game dots fall between like sixty and eighty. He looks like he should be excellent on the stuff from a point of view. But if you go and so if we start there and then you take a journey to like his Statcast page, well, I mean, like you don't have to go that far to see. He's just striking fewer people out, right? If that's like the next place you go, um, and mm-hmm. the question is why. The thing that I always worry about where stuff can be wrong um, is like basically, are you sequencing pitches poorly? Are you tipping your pitches? Yeah, I don't think that's usually my first yep. thing I assume, but I'm always curious about it. But yeah, he's gone from like a roughly 30% strikeout rate over the first two seasons of his career to like 20% this year. And like he's always walked a few more people than you want to, but like I always wonder like what happens that suddenly you're just not striking him out. People aren't hitting him in his own. I should note that's really important. Um, it, that's usually a, a tell to me that like his stuff is still good, and you like when the stuff is like, you know, like those like pitch mm-hmm. modeling stuff and looks fine. But are they are they able to better lay off the stuff that they used to be swinging at, like the yeah the uh, o ozone <laughs> o swing chase rate yeah, yeah right. literally yep. my my handle joke um, yeah and so people are chasing less uh, he he kind of like sustained like a thirty percent chase rate he's down to like twenty four point four. And people are also yeah. making more contact outside of the zone. His chase contact rate is up, uh, which means that basically if he's throwing a pitch out of the zone, um, he's getting way less out of it than he normally does. That's right. concerning to a degree. Um, and I don't yeah. 100% know how you can explain that, whether or not you think that would be the same. Now, like, you know, I think that's the sort of thing where you just kind of hope it normalizes out and some people will just like stop doing really well against him. But it might be the sort of thing where, like, you would want to go find some people who are a little bit better at, like, the is his release changing? Is he changing where he's standing on the mound? All of those sorts of questions. But it does like, suggest that the hitters have a better idea of what's coming, whether that's tipping or whether that's uh, he's not tunneling as well, or his mechanics are a little bit different, or or something. If the if the stuff grade is the same, it's not like it's breaking l- less. So that they, when they're swinging, they're instead of swinging and missing, they're swinging and making some sort of weird contact and getting lucky that it's landing. Mm-hmm. It does seem like they, again, sequencing something along those lines. Um, if he's able to throw the things as well as he's always been able to throw them, but they're resulting in less outs, there's an adjustment or there's a tip, right? It's got to be one of those two things. That's that's kind of the thought, right? Is that, um, you know, something about the batters, like choices and thoughts has changed here um i want to kind of like give like a last sort of thing that i would look at before i would kind of like hypothetically say like let's green light the deeper look because i'm curious um is i will i want to actually just go ahead and look really quickly at uh how often people are swinging um yeah his zone rate's roughly the same this is zone swing rate's roughly the same uh yeah that was like the last thing really yeah overall here like there's got to be some other sort of thing. And that's one of the things is like, I don't think he's going to be bad forever as a result of this. If you're in a dynasty sort of situation, he's a buy it low or he's like a, um, he's a sort of person where you want to believe that they can kind of figure out what needs to be changed very slightly. Uh, these differences between like location slash like movement grades and then just outcomes are, are, I feel like usually fixable, uh, relatively speaking, like, there's a reason these models work, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, but right. I think he makes for a nice representative example of a couple other people who have fallen into similar situations. Uh, Jose Barrios is like the exact same thing, uh, like to the T. Like his stuff grades look excellent. We're talking like 65th grade, <laughs> like out of 80. Like he's looked awesome, um, except he hasn't looked awesome at all. And he's also just not getting whiffs. Like one of the things I like to track, we've talked about this before and like the PitchCon thing is like that. How many whiffs do you get against the average batter, right? Uh, yep. And Barrios has been just bad. Uh, like we're talking out of 148 pitchers who have faced 100 batters, he's 137th. That is horrendous. Yeah. Bottom 10% material. Um, Rogers. So then, obviously, worth. that begs the question: Why, if his stuff is good, why is that happening? And and that's where it becomes sometimes tougher to answer that question. Right. I should note Trevor Rogers is above average, but he's like 50th percentile. So like, that's not 50th percentile. His 60th, I call it 60th percentile. He's 61st out of 
150s. Top, yeah, that's 60 percentile, basically, exactly. Um, in terms of called strikes, I think that's like the other thing because I, I do that for just whiffs, but then I'll also do it for like combined. Uh, Trevor Rogers, in terms of called strikes, has been great actually. Uh, so something is up there. I can't put my finger quite on what it is, but something is up there. And I know that he is basically, if you're listening to this and you're the person who does pitching analysis stuff, smart uh, for some reason listening to me, um, go look at him. DM me your results. I'm very curious. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think this back. stuff is fascinating. So if you're, if you're listening because you want somebody to tell you what's going on, I think that that these like live looks, like we didn't look any of this stuff up before. We had a list of of players we kind of wanted to talk about. Uh, we didn't look any of this stuff up beforehand, and and the reason that we like to do this sort of thing live is because we want to highlight the process um, mm-hmm. and demystify it a little bit, but also show you that this is not just a matter of when you read an article and and somebody's gone through this process, they're giving you advice and it's probably good advice, but it's, it's not a guarantee because this is what you come across. Well, I've identified this thing, but I've reached the point where I can't really tell you exactly why you'd need to get on the field. You'd have to talk to the player. You'd have to talk to the opposing team. Who's probably not going to tell you that they've figured out that he's tipping his pitches, right? Because that gives them a competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think this is a really good thing for people to hear, even if you were listening for answers, because I think you've gotten a lot of answers. And also it's easy to recognize that there's not always an answer to go find. And also people who have a different perspective on how to find those answers can shed more light on this. I, I think this is a really, really productive exercise. Right. Um, do you want to t- go, no, go, ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> those are like the, yeah. those are the right. mystery box guys. Um, sure. I, this is, that's not a criticism of your process at all, Alexander. I always trust, uh, you know, the, the path that you go down. I think it's, it's like any, anything else, right? The toughest math problems in the world have a bunch of different people with different ideas trying to solve them because they're coming from different perspectives, but you can also mm-hmm. get locked inside that box. The, the old saying, right? That if you're, if you're a hammer, everything in the world looks like a nail. Sometimes it's easy for, for a lot of people to get stuck inside those boxes. Um, us included. And so other perspectives and other conversations are always, always good. But again, if the answer lies somewhere in, in a, a clubhouse conversation or uh, something like that, we're not going to find out <laughs> at least not until somebody else uh, says something. Um, we have these other, other kind of categories of pitcher that I want to make sure we get to. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about like bad results, but good stuff. We've talked about kind of just bad, bad results, bad stuff with Bieber. What about somebody who, um, has maybe some, some, uh, bad outputs or, or, or isn't necessarily doing as well with their stuff, but has m- managed to be okay as a result of that? Um, this is a name that you may have heard me talk about before. Um, I'm really, really worried about Walker Buehler. And I've been really, really worried about Walker Buehler for a while. And he's kind of just continued to get away with it. And I, I want to just say, like, I don't think I'm wrong yet. Because, like, I have to say that. But, man, there's some really weird stuff going on with Walker Buehler. Okay. First and foremost, I want to say the stuff grades for him still look good. Um, his Arsenal is still nasty. Kind of always has been. Uh, last year, though, his fastball fell off a little bit, and everything kind of stopped working quite as well. Strikeouts went away. Walker Buehler has a 20% strikeout rate right now. He has a 6% walk rate. He has a 289 ERA. And you're like, okay, I wish you'd strike some more guys out, but things have been pretty much fine. Um, the barrels aren't coming, but they never really have. Like That's that's not really changed a whole lot. But I want to say, like, if you're putting this all together, not striking out a lot of guys, walking a few, and then getting a totally average to below average amount of hard contact uh, create like uh, created. Uh, Bueller, let me pull it up again, is currently below average, 29% hard contact. That is the same as Shane Bieber. That is the same as uh, Marco Gonzalez. That is the same as Kyle Hendricks. These are guys that I'm like long-term a little bit worried. I kind of have things on. It's roughly the same, by the way, as Max Free. And... Um, it's another guy who, like, he can't keep getting away with it. They're continuing to get hit hard. Um, they kind of get away with it. And so these are guys that I'm like, is it just that they're really good at making sure the hard contact they create is directly into the ground? Because that would totally be fine. And that has been kind of the theory to a degree here. 
um, mm-hmm. is that like they're just producing hard hit ground balls. will be okay. I should note that uh, part of Bueller's success last year was generating remarkably few line drives. He's had a bunch of line drives this year. Uh, so like like he's regressed back to average where he thought he would be. Um, so yeah, he has had a lower average launch angle. He so he has kind of done that you could say to a degree. Um, I haven't checked his left on base rate, so let me kind of pull that as like a last bow on this. But if I had to like pick a guy who like I would want to be able to sell high right now, it's it's still him, and it kind of always has been him because I'm just worried about how this all comes together. And depending on who you're trading it to, the strikeout right might be like an ob- like a little too obvious. But I imagine there's got to be someone you can deal him to who will pay full full price despite this. Yeah, his left on base rate eighty percent. Uh, yeah, he hasn't had a lot of home runs despite the amount of hard contact again because he's not really giving up five balls. This is another one of those where it's like, my perspective, my hammer says he should be bad. Um, now, we could ask ourselves, are the strikeout rates going to come back? Um, so the thing I like to look at here is like the, the whiff thing, right? Where is he at? And he's slightly above average there, but like just barely. I imagine his strikeout rate should improve a bit. Like, of course it should, right? Even given these inputs. Hmm. Yeah, in terms of called strikes, he actually hasn't been at it getting a hold of called strikes either, so that's part of his problem, it seems. Um, he is 123rd out of 148 in uh, called strikes plus whiffs per batter. He's hitting an average of one earned strike per batter, so he's really relying on foul balls and being hard to square up. But people are squaring him up just fine. See, I, I'm worried there, and I always have been, about him being, like, an ace. Like, I think he's going to be good, but, like, this screams, like, guy who should be, like, SP20 or so. Um, I joked preseason uh, quite a bit that, um, what's his name that got traded to the Mets? Uh, I Bassett? His name. Yeah, Chris Bassett was better than Walker Buehler because they had, like, the same, like, ERA <laughs> in my front law. Uh, Bassett's been better than Buehler in my mind this year. Like, I, I would... I would go so far as to say go that look that I, up. Go I'm ahead. Good. Yeah, Chris Bassett has a 109 whip. He's got a 277 ERA, and he has a 25% strikeout rate with a let's say walk rate. Yep, he's been better than Bueller so far this year. I would prefer Bassett rest of the season. Uh, I wow, you heard it here. Yep, I would prefer <laughs> Bassett. Well, I mean, I can't listen, believe I was we, about that in any margin at all. We have to care about these output metrics because that's how our leagues are won and lost. It's right. not necessarily we think that ERA and whip are the best indicators of uh, a pitcher's skill, but we still have to care about it. Walker Bueller could do an entire season and have amazing stuff grades, but I don't have a stuff plus league. That's not, that's not I don't play in a league that, that uses that as the, the uh, determining factor as to whether or not I win or lose. So what you're really trying to determine here is when do I make an adjustment? When do I bench these guys? When do I cut bait? When do I trade them? When do I trade for them? And I think this process, like I said, whether or not somebody else might love Bueller and really be bought in, um, the, the, the actual player isn't quite as important as the process and the thinking and the trying to figure out what is the variable that's causing this weird thing to be weird. Um, and if you can zero in on it, it doesn't necessarily have to be exact. Like with, with Rogers, we don't know exactly what it is, mm-hmm. but we've gotten it within a realm where we can probably make a decent educated guess. Same thing with Bueller. Hopefully you can make a decent educated guess. That's not a guarantee. That's not a certainty. Um, Chris Bassett could have a terrible second half. This happens all the time with players, right? Where they, they string together a a great first half and they struggle in the second half for whatever reason. It could, it could be that they, they're unfortunately a family member is sick at home and their focus is divided. And there's a thousand things that Mm -hmm. make human Mm -hmm. beings perform differently, um, over a long period of time. But I, I think the process is a good one. And I'd like to ask you before we end this episode, to turn this process around and help us understand maybe a couple of guys that we didn't see coming. And I'm going to throw out a couple of names. You do not have to go with these names, but I think that they might be useful Mm -hmm. in terms of how we can understand people that are doing better than we expected. And that is before he got hurt, McGill, Tyler, uh, Tyler, Tyler McGill, uh, and who is somebody else who's currently being very good and is not hurt. And that's Nestor Cortez. 
um, because those are people that we were not on to the degree, uh, at least, uh, of how successful they've been um, and help maybe understand that by reversing this process, changing the polarity, so to speak. Um, so I don't want to like take too much credit here because I don't deserve that much. Uh, but these are both guys that showed up really good based off of the handful of things that I care about and that I stagnated a couple teams early, early, early in the year, uh, either in drafts or trades preseason because I was like, eh, they're so cheap. Like they're depending on your depth. If you're playing in a 12 to 15 team league that rosters like eight to nine starting pitchers apiece, you know, these are guys that are like, um, going to be like the five dollar ish guys where it's like they're sp 60 or so but there's just so much risk that people let them go if you gave them something they like um or that you know like you have a decent chance you don't have to reach that much in terms of you know if you pay seven dollars for a five dollar guy or you know, you reach by two rounds it's not that big of a deal um so the things that like we should like about them uh like preseason where like they just didn't give up a whole lot of card contact and they struck out a decent number of batters and you know, you could hope that like the walk rates or whatever be good. Uh, in McGill's case, he's really tall. He throws, he's throwing pretty hard, but like not super hard. And the that took a velo early in the year. Uh, kind of fell off at times. There's been some like questions about injury, and then like, the IL for a biceps thing. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, uh, but I caught this or someone else and was able to pass it along to some people in the PL Discord. Uh, his like mom, <laughs> like basically broke the news ahead of time that like his like scans were like clean. And that he was sore, but like it wasn't anything major. And I think he's like playing catch now and like isn't feeling anything. So I'm hoping he's back. But like, yeah, the signs have been encouraging for sure. Right. But he's like the sort of guy who like you could have hoped early in the year, like maybe put some stuff together. I made some annoying jokes at the expense of some people who are, uh, you know, Mets fans that Tyler McGill was going to be um, the most underrated SB3 this year. And then unfortunately for like three seconds, I was right after like the ground got hurt. Um, and then he was good. Uh, I'm really happy for him being good because like the guys who like don't have their spot nailed down because they're like the, the sixth starter, you know, coming in and like earning their spot and keeping it. I always love to see that. So he's the sort of guy where like you may have some questions about like, does the Velo increase stick that would have really helped him take off? And like, that's something to watch. Um, but he has have a good track record. And those guys who are as tall as him, um, who re- release the ball like so close to the mound or, or close to the home plate, you know, like uh, Tyler Glasnow, for example, you know, like if they can get some good velocity, you just have no time to decide on them. So like, you know, their stuff's good. Like you just got no chance. And like, it seems like it is really coming together. You know, like that's like, I guess the projectability of some of these like lanky guys who like have a good frame, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know that much about scouting, but I know, I know that that's something that you can't care about. And so, like, things had gone pretty well. It looked like it was mostly deserved. Like, not a thousand percent deserved, but, like, mostly deserved. So I pull him up on the, uh, um, like, CSW per PA. He's in the top third. He'll like, pull him up in whiff per PA. He's uh, 24th out of 150, so that's, like, really good. Um, like, he's in the same tier in terms of, like, whiffs he's getting per average batter as, um, you throw out some fun names, Luis Severino, Hunter Green, Sean Manaya, Freddy Peralta is just a tick ahead of him. Pablo Lopez is just a tick ahead of him. So in that range of like pretty good guys, ahead of Alec Manoa, for example, uh, ahead of Zach Wheeler. So he's he's getting his whiffs, which you'd want to see. And then the hard, on the hard contact side, he was also a guy that kind of popped there. He's looking good. And yeah, he's like top third. So all told, looks like a package for sustainable success if he comes back healthy. But like nothing crazy there. He's just been good. Nestor Cortez is way more interesting, uh, and I'm glad you brought him up. So we can actually kind of end on this funny note. He actually doesn't get that many whiffs. Um, he is a guy who like really, really, really gets by to a degree on foul balls and it's called strikes because his ninety-ish uh, mile an hour stuff just moves so much at the end because he is just like a, sh- a seam shifted weight king. Uh, his late movement, you know, like the the you know, the spin axis itself spins a bit as it goes, and it starts moving in a different direction as it gets closer to the plate, has just made him impossible to square up, and so he is just absolutely mowing down batters on the on the basis that they can't put their bat in the right spot. Um, and they might hit the ball, but, like, not in a good way. <laughs> like, it, it ends up somewhere else. So, Nestor Cortez is, as of right now, 
Let me make sure I get this right. Uh, 23rd lead in hard contact rate, 22.5%. The whiffs, uh, top third, uh, like not exceptional, but top third is good. And on the called strikes, so the CSW plus whiff per batter, he's at uh, like 1.3. He's in the same range, at, like 18th out of the overall, so it's like top 10%. In the same rough category as Aaron Nola, Pablo Lopez, Brandon Woodruff, who, by the way, is still good. Uh, and a lot of other guys who've been performing really well. Max Scherzer before he got hurt. Uh, Kyle Wright, you know. He's in that top, top tier range in terms of, like, his overall approach just working. Um, and it's not conventional, but he does is a guy that kind of, like, gets to show off this fun new stat. So um, I, would, I would say, like, if we're looking for a reason to believe that someone's good... A little bit of stuff like continuing over from a previous previous season really helps. Um, this isn't something they just started doing out of nowhere. It's not something that doesn't make sense based off of like the the inklings of science we got about how pitching works. And also, it's really fun. And I think that uh, if it's really fun, I'm just inclined to believe it regardless <laughs> like the veracity of it all. So yeah, well, we're doing so this for the fun of it, right? That's yeah. that's right, the whole point. Right, right. Um, well, as, as you may or may not be able to hear in the background, my infant son is awake. And that means that we have come to the end of this episode, Alexander, if you could, uh, remind the people where they could find us. Well, they can find you on Twitter at the corked mat. I'm on Twitter at chase underscore rate. And most importantly, you can find our podcast on Twitter at dugout study hall, where you can send us some questions. Please be sure to subscribe to the Pitcherless podcast feed if you haven't done that already. Leave us a good review if you can be so kind. And if you're not already, please consider becoming a PL Plus member so that you can harass us on the PL Discord. And that's it for me. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll catch you next time.